Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. On this month's Masters of the Universe, myself and my co-host, Amanda Albright, are pleased to be joined by New York State Comptroller Thomas DiNapoli. This edition marks a slight departure from our previous slate of guests who have brought us perspectives on the municipal market from the sell side, buy side, and market vendors. As the economy potentially heads toward a more volatile period and inflation is proving to be anything but transitory, we felt that hearing from one of the largest issuers in the market would be a topic of universal interest. For those that are not familiar with the controller, Mr. DiNapoli has pretty much been in public service his entire life, winning his first election at just 18 to serve as trustee for the Mineola Board of Education. He served in the controller position since 2007 and won re-election in 2010, 2014, and 2018. While his office has many mandates, I thought the two of interest for our listeners the most would be the oversight for tax dollars and managing the state pension fund which I will say he's done a very good job at. Just by the numbers, the New York pension plan returned almost 34% in fiscal 2021 and boasts an almost fully funded status at 99%. Mr. Comptroller, welcome to the podcast. Eric, thank you. It's good to be with you. I appreciate uh, the kind remarks, especially about our pension fund management. Obviously, when we talk talk about that topic, it's been a little more stressful in, uh, in recent weeks. And, and I do want to just mention, uh, you're right, my, my first election was at age 18, but I, I did spend uh, 10 years in the private sector working for a little company called AT&T. So I always like to remind people that I, I did have the <laughs> private sector ex- corporate experience uh, along yeah. the way as well. <laughs> well, which has been your favorite out of the two, the private sector or the public sector? I mean, wow. obviously both are I different. Mean, you know, I, I, I enjoyed I enjoyed the corporate world very much, but uh, I made the choice when I, I had the opportunity to run for state assembly after I had about 10 years uh, working uh, at AT&T, and I was there pre-divestiture and during divestiture, uh, and I really felt that in terms of not necessarily, you know, economic tangible reward, but in terms of, of, of um, personal reward uh, satisfaction in terms of what I was working on, I, I just felt more uh, drawn to public service, kind of being a kid that grew up in the late 60s, early 70s, coming of age. So yeah. so I, I never, um, I would say, other than the first year when I was in elective office and I really questioned whether I made the right choice, once I got acclimated to the world of full-time politics, I have to say I've never, never regretted the choice at all. Well, you're a braver man than I. I actually ran for my local school board and I had the unfortunate luck of doing it in the middle of a pandemic. So you oh. could sort of imagine how that went. But, uh, oh, okay. you know, I do thank you for all the public service that you've had throughout your career. Thank so you. let, let's sort of dive right in and I'm going to let Amanda uh, kick us off here. Um, we have a whole bunch of questions we'd like to try and get to. Um, so, Amanda, without further ado. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think, um, you know, we're probably going to be talking about um, New York's pandemic experience a lot during the podcast. And so I kind of wanted to start there. There's anything that surprised you in terms of how New York has fared financially um, during the past two years or so? Yeah, thank you for that question, Amanda. Look, uh, I guess, you know, we've been on such a roller coaster, it seems, right? I I, I guess the first big surprise uh, was when the pandemic hit, just how severe 
the downturn was in terms of revenue coming not only to, to, to the state government, but to our local governments as well. And, and a real sense, you know, back in, in um, you know, March, April, May of, of, of 2020, that uh, we were going to be facing huge budget gaps and uh, disruption in services, uh, potentially increased taxes to, you know, significantly increased taxes to deal with, with some of that or severe service cuts and then and then it seemed to come back uh, you know more more quickly than than had been anticipated however uh, new york because we were hit so hard so early the reality is while we're still recovering jobs we're still lagging uh, the national recovery certainly in terms of of the jobs issue and and so I think you know one of the words that, that Eric used in the in the setup is you know the notion of the volatility that we're going through. So I would even say on the on 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 the revenue side, we saw significant volatility at the front end. And what really helped to stabilize our finances was the significant infusion of the federal dollars. And that really made a huge difference for the state, and by extension, then the state did did not have to pass on to local governments cuts in state funding that would have impacted schools and municipalities. So, um, you know, now fast forward to where we are today and, you know, volatility in the financial markets is, is something we're looking at closely because one of the big revenue drivers for us, certainly, you know, you look at last year, uh, you know, almost, you know, I think near record profits for Wall Street, um, uh, near record bonus pool payments and the tax revenue that comes from that. So fast forward to today, uh, that doesn't seem to be what we're, we're going to be experiencing, uh, barring any big, you know, change by year's end. And there are implications then, you know, for that. Um, the federal money, you know, is not forever, you know, so how we track that and then manage the spending of it uh, is is another issue of concern that you know in terms of what what we do in terms of looking at state finances is another part of, of our wheelhouse in terms of uh, of tracking that and sales tax revenue you know uh, after personal income tax a very significant revenue source for the state and obviously for many of our local governments still very strong uh, so you know we're in this strange, dynamic now with this there there are almost in some ways contradictory numbers coming in in terms of the of the economic data and with all the challenges out there we're, we're still adding jobs in the new york economy tax revenue coming in uh even with the current concerns about you know taxpayer migration and uh the economy not being so good tax revenue coming in higher than projected so you know bottom line i guess is the roller coaster continues New York, uh, though, is in a, a much stronger position than I think many of us had anticipated when uh, the impact of the pandemic first hit. You know, it's it's so hard to talk about New York without sort of people naturally thinking about just New York City, right? Because obviously it weighs disproportionately upon the state finances. But if it's interesting, you talked about sort of this recovery and employment, but the rest of the state seems to have recovered just fine compared to national averages. It actually seems that New York City is really the laggard there um, in terms of getting back to a recovery, you know, to pre-pandemic levels. I mean, what do you think are, are sort of the natural drags there? Um, and, and when do you think that that might sort of even out? Because, you know, it's just it hasn't gone away yet. 
mean, it, it, Eric, you're really you know putting your finger on a, a, a you know a, a very interesting consequence of what we've been going through. It's usually the, the other way around whenever we talk about New York's economy, right? Yeah. That the, the city is the economic engine, and uh, the rest of the state is 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 behind. And and you know from the beginning, it's been just the opposite, and it continues to be. You're right. If you, if you factor out the city, we're much closer to the national you know, recovery numbers. It's the city that's a drag. Uh, I, I don't mean that uh, as negatively as it sounds. I'm just looking at the numbers. Yeah. You know, it's, still, it, it's still a drag. So, I, look, I think the simple explanation is the city was just hit so severely uh, that it's just, it's just taking a, a whole lot longer. Mm-hmm. I think um, you look at, you know, we're tracking different sectors of, of the city's economy. And, you know, one example, you know, the city so many different um, uh, aspects of its economy. It's much more diverse than it used to be. I mean, you just take the, the area of, of tourism and hospitality and recreation, you know, so the restaurants, the Broadway shows, uh, yeah. the impact of, of travelers coming to the city. And that's one area, it's a significant driver of the city's economy. That's one area where we've seen a very um, significant return of domestic travel, you know, day trippers and people coming from other parts of the country where we really have not seen a, a significant recovery is with international tourism and and frankly the international tourists uh, tend to spend the most money uh, so that's an example that's you know affected hotels uh, restaurants entertainment venues uh, so that I mean that's that's certainly one slice of what's been uh, one of the drags and, and one of the challenges. Then you just look at the, the change in the work schedules. So that great density of, of office workers in, in the central business district of Manhattan, you know, they're not coming in five days a week like they were before. So, you know, they're still getting paid. So that's the good news for them. Uh, but they're not going out at lunchtime and spending money at the local retail shops or at the local restaurants. They're not staying in the city at night to go out uh, to dinner or, or to shop. So that has a negative multiplier effect on all of the kinds of businesses, some of the smaller businesses that, that you know, were so key to the central business district. But, you know, it's not all gloom and doom. Um, I mean, certainly the outer boroughs in some ways are, are, are not experiencing some of that same uh, negative impact, but it, it doesn't make up for, you know, the central business district in Manhattan still not being back to where it was. And I think one of the challenges in projecting for the future is that I, I guess most folks assume that we're not gonna go back to office workers being in the office five days a week ever again, or anytime soon. So what are the implications you know, that that has, not just for occupancy in, in, in Manhattan offices, but really for uh, all of the activity related to a dense working population being in the city five days a week? It's interesting. One of my favorite charts to look at, and we, we have some of these data sets on the Bloomberg Terminal, are um, actually open table reservations in Manhattan. And then you sort of overlay that with MTA turnstile data. And they're, they're completely divergent, right? So obviously people are going about their lives. They're just, you know, not commuting into the city, like you said, five days a week. And, and you know, we're seeing that sort of negative drag in other cities. So New York's not alone in that regard. Um, you know, do you think that that has implications in the suburban areas as well, you know, as, as you know, companies who, who got suburban office space might look to cut back? And, you know, obviously that's going to have a drag as well for commercial real estate valuations. Yeah, although, I mean, at this point, certainly in the, in the downstate suburbs, uh, you know, I live out on Long Island. There's, there's been no uh, 
drop in, in, in uh, home prices. Uh, and this, of course now, because people are concerned about mortgage rates going up, um, there's, there's much less inventory. But, um, you know, the suburbs for some people have become more attractive uh, and, and certainly more people can can work from home, right? There were there was some, you know, we often talk about the migration of taxpayers outside of New York State, you know, which is always a concern. But, you know, we did have a migration of, of city taxpayers out to the suburbs or, you know, uh, whether it's Long Island or the Hudson Valley. Uh, so, you know, at least they stay in, the, in you know, in, in our state for now. But um, I also get, I mean, some of this is anecdotal and, you know, just when you think you've got to figure it out, the trends change again. I think we are at a point right now where, you know, some folks that had been living outside the city are, are starting to say it's time to come back. I mean, certainly, uh, as I'm sure, you know, uh, Eric, you and Amanda have experienced, uh, you know, the city is um, coming back. I mean, I, you know, our office is downtown Manhattan, down on Main Lane, and, and, and early, the early days of the pandemic, it was a ghost town, as, as, yeah. as much of Manhattan was. But, you know, I, when I'm in the city, you know, the past uh, couple of days, it's, so you know, it's not back to 100% of what it was, but there's certainly a tremendous amount of foot traffic. People are out and about, starting to see more tourists coming back, even, even every now and then a group of folks speaking another language. So some of that uh, international tourism seems to be coming back. So it's, it's, it's just taking longer. And, and, and it's, it's a combination of the economic questions, but, but look, yes. as we all know from the papers and the stories, people are concerned about quality of life issues in the city as well. So they're still concerned yes. about you know, safety, crime, homelessness, you know, all, all of the above. Um, and some folks are still very concerned with the variant, the latest variant about being in, you know, in, in uh, crowded areas. So, you know, it's, it's, still, it's still a ways to go before back to where we were. But, we, you know, I have some friends that say, oh, the city must be a ghost town. No, the, city's, the city's not a ghost town anymore. It, it, it's definitely... Not where it was. It's 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 still you know it, it's it's slowly coming back to where it was, and to a certain extent, the new normal may not be what it was in in 2019. But it, but it's it's certainly hey, New York City is still New York City. I think anybody that bets against the resilience of New York City makes a a really a really big mistake. No, I would agree, and I think Jerry Seinfeld also said that as well, right? Remember, uh, I think it was late yeah. 2020. He said, "Never bet against New York." So. <laughs> I, I didn't realize he said it, or if I did, I, I do it subconsciously. I apologize <laughs> to Jerry Seinfeld, my fellow Long Island native, that uh, that I, I borrowed something from him. But I'm a North Shore guy. He's a South Shore guy. So, you know, good competition there. Um, comfortably, I want to talk a little bit about um, the outlook for, for Wall Street. So my colleagues um, at Bloomberg, you know, they covered earnings the last week, and it seems like, you know, banks are warning that they're planning to rein in, um, you know, banker pay, um, just given, you know, kind of the economic issues that they're dealing with. Like, what, what does that mean for New York? Um, like, what does it, what does it mean for New York's finances if, if um, banker pay is pulled back a little bit? Well, look, I mean, it's, it's very clear that, you know, when Wall Street came back so strongly and Eric referenced our, you know, over 30 through almost 34% return last year on the pension fund. That was not going to be, and we said when we put out our profit report on Wall Street and the bonuses and so on, it was, that was not sustainable. It was not going to continue at that, at that high level. And, and so, 
you know, even baked into the, the city budget estimates and the state budget estimates, it was baked in that Wall Street and securities industry would not have as strong a year. I guess the concern would be if, um, you know, and again, it's volatile, it's up and it's down. If, if it's on a more significantly downward trajectory for securities industry, for banks, um, worse than had been baked into the projections, I mean, that, that, that could very well create uh, a shortfall in terms of revenue. My, my bigger concern on that issue would be, you know, for the banks and for the Wall Street firms, you know, one way that you, you help to um, maintain profitability is, is to downsize, right, and, and to eliminate positions. And that's obviously, you know, a concern because we, we, we have always estimated that for every job that's created uh, in, in this area, it, it, the multiplier effect is, is, is another two jobs created elsewhere in the city, another job created outside the city. So if, if the employment base is going to contract, uh, the reverse could be the case. It's not, not just whatever loss of revenue there may be from, you know, from the banking sector or from, from Wall Street, but it, it could have broader implications for the economy. So mm. the industry is smaller than it had been years ago anyway. You know, that's, that's been a trend that's gone on for, you know, a long period of time. But these are very well compensated positions and uh, we don't want to lose them. So, yeah. you know, if, if, they could, if they could hopefully see their way through the challenging uh, times that we have and, and not downsize, uh, that to me would be the, the preferable uh, outcome of, of the challenges we're facing. But it still looked like in, in the first quarter that tax revenue was still pretty strong in New York. So you're not seeing any sign of this yet, right? It almost seems counterintuitive, right? With all the, you know, the, the negative uh, news of late on the economic front, inflation, what the Fed's doing, implications of that, Wall Street uh, not performing as well. But uh, our, you know, in our latest cash report, we are still significantly over uh, tax collections. Much of that is driven by personal income tax, which is such a big part of, of the state's revenue. And I think part of that is even if some of the folks uh, at the higher end that pay estimated taxes, if even though that appears to be down, because the the uh, the jobs are still growing. Uh, again, we'd like it to be at a faster pace, but they're still growing. The taxes that we get from withholding is is, is still doing very very well. So, um, yeah, for now, uh, it's it's the budget is holding together. There's obviously a lot of concern about where we're headed right now, but you know we have to just go by the numbers. We are ahead of where we thought we were going to be. The, the the state budget certainly that was put together anticipated year over year, there'd be less, uh, you know, personal income tax revenue anyway, because again, uh, given the strength of last year. So, so far, it's holding together. I always say to folks, though, you know, you, you have to look at all this, you know, month to month. It, this, it, we could have a different conversation two or three months from now, depending on, on, on how this all goes. Have sales taxes been a surprise to you at all? Um, we, we put out a report, I want to say about two weeks ago, um, and, and it was in a response to a Brookings report that looked at national sales tax collections, that they were down, uh, you know, not, not surprisingly, but New York was completely contrary to that in far as trends, um, you know, not just on the state level, but, you know, if you're looking specifically like at like, you know, down counties, especially yeah. ones that are heavily reliant. So, yes. I mean, 
No, I mean, look, it, it, it's a spot. Look, part of it right now you have to factor in is, is, is inflation, right? That, that's, that skews it somewhat. Yep. But the reality is uh, certainly, uh, you know, right up until the significant increase uh, in inflation, we were reporting sales tax uh, increases that, that exceeded, because, because in the beginning people said, well, you know, you're, you're coming off the pandemic. You're, so, of course, the increases are going to be significant. But we were comparing the numbers. We went back and looked pre-pandemic, 2019, and we were seeing month-to-month sales tax collections exceeding 2019. So, uh, you know, again, this is part of the contradictory time we're going through. People are, are nervous. They're concerned. They're, they're feeling very insecure with the economy. But they're still spending money. You know, so uh, does that mean that uh, it's it's simply pent up demand? Does that mean that um, they're actually long term more optimistic than uh, some of the surveys may indicate? You know, look, it, could that trend change at some point uh, if things if some of the some of the indicators don't improve? Absolutely, but for now, there's no doubt that that people are spending money, and that's reflected in sales tax. And you know, you raise an interesting point. Many people uh, often, uh, certainly where I live, talk about the property taxes, the most owner's tax, and so on. But the reality is for, you know, for our big counties, they, they rely much more on the sales tax uh, than they do on property tax these days. So uh, that is what has you know, helped to make a difference for, for the county budgets to be uh, in as good a shape as they are uh, because the sales tax has still been very, very strong. And many of the counties, as you know, share a portion of the sales tax with the municipalities within that jurisdiction as well. So the cities and the towns, the villages uh, get some of that as well. Yeah. Um, so Eric mentioned at the top of the um, podcast, just the um, pension funding levels being so strong in New York. Um, but, you know, obviously there is still a bit of downside if, you know, the stock market is going to con- continue declining. So I'm just curious if, um, you know, what, what options your office has or what options you've already used to kind of mitigate some of the volatility that we're seeing? Well, I, you know, look, I guess the good news is, you know, as Eric mentioned, we, we come into this challenging time from a position of strength. So unlike many of the public pension plans in the country, we're actually well-funded, uh, you know, uh, and, and uh, keep in mind, our, we value the fund based on the fiscal year, and we're just finalizing uh, the numbers. I don't have them yet because there's a lag so March 31st is when we value the fund e- e- each year. And, you know, obviously we have the public equity numbers, but we don't have all the numbers in for uh, our private market investments. What I what I do know uh, is that we're not going to be at 33% for the fiscal year ending March uh, 31st. But the good news is we, we, we are going to beat our long-term goal, our long-term assumed rate of return, which, which when we had that big run-up uh, last year, we did cut the rates that we charge to our, our government employers, but we did something else. We took some of those uh, significant earnings and we, we used it to lower the assumed rate of return. So we had been at a 6.8% long-term goal, you know, not, 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 not a one year, but really, you know, decades long goal for the long-term, you know, which pension funds obviously are very patient uh, long-term investors. We lowered it to 5.9%. So we have one of the lowest uh, assume rates of return in the country. I think there only was one other state that's below 6% assume rate of return. That's going to help us in the short run uh, since it, it is a very challenging market. So when we put out our numbers 
hopefully by by early August uh, as to how we uh, we ended the the March 31st, and then that number is what goes into our calculation for the contribution rate. We we will have made our, our number the 5.9. It'll be a little higher than that. Again, I don't have the the absolute final one, but uh, look, the 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 estimated value as of June 30th is down. I mean, obviously we we are a diversified portfolio, but you know, about ha roughly half of our pension fund is in uh, public equities. So we're, we're very impacted by what's happening with uh, the stock market, the public market. And because we are so uh, large, uh, it's very hard to, to move a, a, a big ship rapidly, right? So, so it, it, we're not so much um, tactical because it's hard to move big chunks of money for us. So we're, we're confident in our asset allocation. Yeah, around the edges, do, are we able to do a few things to try to mitigate the risk that's out there right now? But I, I think it would be fair to say we have confidence in, in our long-term strategy. We're not altering uh, the asset allocation at this point. We do operate from a position of strength. We are going to have a another positive year uh, this year and we have until next march 31st to get through you know the headwinds that are there right now you know some years march 31st is a tough uh, valuation day for us you know this year you know our, our colleagues with the new york city funds and the state teachers fund they, they have a june 30th uh, valuation deadline so so they've got you know they've got six months of a tougher environment we we've got three months already under our belt of it so I'm, I'm still optimistic we're going to be in strong shape and we're still going to be uh, very well funded. And that, that means that our retirees don't have to be nervous about they're, they're not going to be able to get their pension checks. I, I want to just like hit on a point that I thought was really interesting when, when sort of diving into the website and preparing for today. And it really had to do with sort of the composition of the pension portfolio and the focus on, I would say, ESG investments and, and even further um, making sure you're diversifying, you know, who is investing in the state pension with minority and women-owned businesses, you know, as, as sort of sustainable investment and, and diversity and in investments are, are huge topics for investors in every market right now. You know, is this something that you feel set New York state pension aside from, you know, other states who are managing? Um, do you feel like you guys are like leaders in that regard? I, I'd like to think that we are. Um... You know, certainly in terms of, of, of um, women-owned firms and, 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 and uh, firms of color, we have had a very uh, ambitious goal and commitment going back really from when I started as controller because we heard a lot of complaints that it, it was a closed shop and, and opportunities weren't there for uh, women and minority professionals to be investment partners with us. And, and over many years, and I give great credit to our staff, we really developed a, a very effective both emerging manager program, which is, you know, for newer uh, managers, uh, usually smaller, often women and minority, not, not exclusively. And then related to that, the overall MWBE uh, commitment that we have. So we're up to about $27 billion now in assets that are managed by MWBE firms uh, and our emerging manager program, I think it's about 9 billion. So yeah, we're ahead of other states and we have a we have dedicated um, relationships with investment partners that help us manage this program. And what we found, Eric, is that many of these relationships, some of them newer for us, have really outperformed uh, many of the traditional relationships we had before. So we view the 
as we always say, right, we have a diversified portfolio, but also diversifying who manages our money has uh, made good business sense. It's added to the strength of the bottom line. So we're, our commitment in that area, you know, continues. And, and I've always said what we've done, we don't rest on our laurels. It's, it, it, it's a floor. It's not a ceiling. And, and we're looking for more opportunities there and hopefully more opportunities within New York State in terms of, of, of um, where that money goes. I would say on ESG, I, I, I prefer to, you know, I know it's become an increasingly uh, uh, much discussed issue um, Absolutely. out there in the broader world. You know, I, I view it less as ESG investing and more uh, we use ESG as, as part of our risk assessment because we, I do believe strongly as trustee of the fund that, that you know, companies we invest in, uh, if, if they're not good stewards on environmental issues or governance issues, uh, and certainly in the wake of George Floyd's killing, uh, the social issues have become uh, a big focus for all of us in American society. You know, then that that is a risk uh, in terms of future profits and sustainability. That that, that important word that you use. So, I, I think of it less as as uh, ESG investing and more using ESG evaluations uh, as as a way to assess risk. And of course, keep in mind that you know, as I said, most of our portfolio, the, the lion's share of the portfolio is in public equity equities, and the lion's share of the public equities are in index funds. So. So the other piece of it is we, we want to stay invested long term. And so we use the ESG evaluation sometimes at the front end b- before we make an investment, particularly with some of the alternative investments. But with regard to uh, the, 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 the public holdings that we have, the public equity holdings, we use that as a way to engage with corporations, you know, with shareholder resolutions and, and, and other means to try to get them to improve their ESG uh, scoring and, and how they perform in, in that way. So we, we find ESG as a, as a very effective uh, mitigator of, of risk for us. And we're not, we're not backing off of that either. All right, fantastic. Um, Comptroller, I wanna bring it back to um, just kind of this idea of um, you know, the strength that New York State has seen um, because of stimulus aid and um, strong tax revenue collections. We've definitely seen, I mean, this is like to be expected. I think muni public finance folks can often be kind of um, doom and gloom generally about the outlook for public finances. But, you know, we've definitely seen a lot of commentary about this idea that like states could see a fiscal cliff when um, federal aid runs out. I'm like personally a little more skeptical of this premise, just given the revenue strength that states have seen and all of the federal money that's come their way. But what do you think of the idea that like, is New York, I mean, is New York heading to a fiscal cliff when the aid runs out? Or do you think that this aid has kind of helped kind of provide a band-aid along the way? And, you know, it won't be this fiscal cliff that analysts are, are warning about. No, I mean, it's made a huge difference. Uh, so a couple of thoughts. So in terms of New York strength, it, it really has been a combination of the recovery happening faster than projected, perhaps not as fast as we like it to be, but certainly faster than initially projected. And we also have to acknowledge that in in last year's budget, the legislature and the governor did increase tax rates on on upper income New Yorkers. So that's generated some additional tax revenue. But the big game changer, as your question implies, uh, Amanda, is that significant infusion of of federal aid at, at many different levels. But for the state government directly, uh, you know, it's it's uh, just shy of 13 billion. 
And uh, I do think we've warned of this. The importance of that money uh, must be part of a recognition that the money is not forever and that the money should not be spent for new initiatives that would be recurring uh, unless you have other revenue to back it up. So, you know, in terms of what we've used so far of that 12.7, uh, we used about four and a half billion of it. That's uh, part of this year's budget. So we actually, I give uh, the legislature and the government credit, they are not using it all at once. So it is, it is there for future years as well. And that's why the, the updated state financial plan uh, continues to show no out-year budget gaps. If for some reason things get worse as we head into the rest of this year, um, the reality is, this would not be preferable, but the reality is we could bring some of that federal money that's dedicated to the future into the present to get us through, uh, you know, if the revenue picture turns, right? If, 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 if we don't want the sky to fall, but let's say the sky falls. Um, and the other piece for New York State is that this is something else we had called for in our budget reports going back a number of years. New York State has not done as well as other states in building up our reserve funds, our rainy day funds for when you have a, a, an economic downturn. The good news is, you know, I give Governor Hochul credit for this, again, working with the legislature, they have made significant uh, uh, additional uh, contributions to the rainy day reserve funds, and they have a plan to build it up over time to get us really where we need to be. So, so between more money set aside for uh, reserve purposes and the fact that we've not spent all the federal money yet, again, that, that gives us strength in the short term if we start to see you know, the revenue picture, the tax collections go, going in a, in a different direction than they've gone, uh, you know, for the first, what has been really the first quarter of this fiscal year, because our, our fiscal year starts April 1st. So, but the same thing for New York City, and we actually had a bit more concern under the prior administration's budgets that they seem to be committing some new spending to the federal dollars without any, any uh, identification of recurring revenue down the road. The Adams administration, I, I think, has has dealt with some of that a bit more effectively in their current budget plan. So we have a monthly, what we call federal tracker, where we look at the federal money coming in, the different programs, how much is New York getting, how much uh, have we spent, how much is out the door. But this is something to look at carefully because the, the money will not be there forever. Uh, the other piece, you know, was mentioned earlier, MTA. I mean, the MTA was kept kept alive by the federal dollars that have come in. But, you know, the, those federal dollars are not lasting forever for the MTA either. So the federal money has been very impactful. Uh, but, uh, and I do think in New York, at least at the state level, we've, we've used it appropriately uh, and, and not tied new programs to that federal money. But we have to be very careful in that regard. I want to get back to the MTA, but before I forget, I was looking at the uh, projected budgets, and you know, I did note, uh, as you pointed out, that there are some gaps in the out years, you know, like you know, three years down the line. But one of the things that also jumped out at me was how much pension contributions for the state ramp up uh, once you get past 2023. You know, is that something that is is of concern to you that could be happening at the same time? Um, you know, as investments are taking a hit, that they could almost look worse than those figures. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things. I mean, for, I mean, for the state, the, the, the assumption is that we'll still uh, not not have gaps. So the city has some out-year gaps, and, and both for the city and the state, the issue of the pension contributions, you're absolutely right. So especially for the city, 
budget because of the June 30th valuation this year, which obviously that is going to be, I mean, I assume it's going to be a negative number uh, for them. You know, keep in mind, there are a lot of factors that go into the, uh, the contribution rates. Investment return is obviously a significant one. However, uh, the other reality is that uh, we have other cost impacts. So good news is people are living a lot longer. So our, the payouts of our pensions, you know, folks are living into their 90s, uh, a big percentage of our, of, of our retirees. The uh, cost of living, the COLA that for retirees, obviously is going to be at the maximum level because inflation is so high. There's an added cost there. The legislature uh, and the governor, I don't think this is a bad thing, but as part of this year's budget, this will affect the state and the city budget. They changed the vesting. They moved it. It had been five years. It was moved to 10 years as part of pension reform. It's now back to five years vesting. There's a cost attached to that, so that's got to be uh, that's got to be factored in. So uh, there there are various impacts beyond investment return that has us projecting that that uh, that pension cost. But the other piece I should mention, I always have to remind my friends in local government, the the base that we're operating off of is higher. P- people have been getting significant wage increases uh, in recent years because. The federal money has kept the budgets in, you know, uh, in balance. Uh, there's obviously been a big expectation in, in contract negotiations, given, you know, all the economic issues out there. So, so that dries up the cost. If people are getting a higher salary, you know, their, their pensions are going to be higher as they retire. So there, there are many factors that are contributing to it. We do hope that, you know, the, the stock market will settle out in a way that the investment return, uh, again, not just on the stocks, but on the private markets as well, will will have us catch up to, uh, you know, those increased costs, because we certainly want to be able to fulfill the obligation that we have to our retirees at a cost that our, lo- particularly our local governments, the state government has a lot more revenue sources than our, our local governments and our school districts. Uh, but but look, it's a concern, but that's, that's why we were aggressive in lowering our assumed rate of return because that's the other piece, right? If, if, if you're meeting your number, you know, you're, you're, you don't have to make up for losses, right? So, so having the more conservative assumed rate of return makes it easier, easier for us to make our, our, our number. So I'm still confident it, it, all that stuff is going to work out in a positive way. And, and I'm not anticipating a, a shock in terms of, 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 a spike in, in contribution rates. But look, I could even say, you know, for this year, it's very possible when we do our final numbers, we might have a modest increase because of, not not because we missed our investment mark, because we were going to make that, but because of those other factors, the higher payroll, the the change in, in, in the vesting, the higher COLA, you know, all of that has a, has a, a cost impact on us as well. Are there any other collective bargaining agreements that are still hanging out there yet to be negotiated? Um, Oh, for the city, absolutely. I mean, the state, uh, most of them, I think, are done now. CSEA was just announced recently, but the city has many of their contracts that are coming due. So that I yeah. think that, that's going to be tough a time to be negotiating those. Well, like the cost for people it, at all time highs, right? It, it's it's yeah. tough because you know it's also you know you're you're hearing uh, about uh, issues with recruitment and retention, right? I mean, you know, you're certainly seeing. That is a challenge too, uh, you know, for government. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's a, a lot of factors that we, we put out a report 
on state overtime. And, and, you know, I mean, no surprise, you know, in response to the pandemic, there was a big spike in, in overtime, but part of it is, is in some of the big agencies that always have overtime, uh, they, they just haven't had adequate staffing levels. They have a hard time recruiting people and retaining them. So that's going to be factored in, you know, to, to the contract negotiations as well, uh, just in terms of, wanting to pay people enough and give them enough incentive to want to work for the city, for the state and to stay there for a while. So, um, yeah, there's a lot. It's a, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's certainly a very tough uh, environment, both for labor and, and for government to get it right. And, you know, while we have a few minutes left, I wanted to make sure to ask about, um, you know, your, your outlook for the MTA, you know, we've been talking about the pandemic and the rise of work from home and that's obviously been the New York entity that's been affected the most by this. So um, just curious about, you know, your outlook for the, the subway system. Well, I mean, as I said earlier, th- thankfully the federal money really has kept the MTA afloat and that, that's very positive news. What well, you know, the report that we're, we just issued uh, really identifies the, you know, the real challenge for the MTA. So much of the MTA's finances are reliant on the fare box on ridership. And it, just hasn't come back. I mean, it's it's well below the 2019 levels, the pre-pandemic levels. You know, you've, you've seen some level of recovery, you know, with regard to uh, subways and railroad and bus. You've seen some change in the patterns, you know, if, you know, for some of those services, the weekends actually are, are, are back a little more strongly than, than weekday. Uh, but, um, you know, the MTA is anticipating uh, that they're gonna have to borrow uh, to close the gap short term. Uh, that's not a good long-term strategy uh, at all. And I think what the MTA needs to do is really um, be a bit more creative in terms of perhaps adjusting some of the ways they deliver the service and the schedules. Uh, you know, one of the positive things that the MTA did is that, you know, they, they, they did not increase uh, uh, the fares for the subways to try to encourage people to come. Everything else was going up, but, you, you know, you still got the, the subway ride, you know, was the same. We don't want to see a pattern where, I mean, there will be increases, right? They've been put off, but they're going to happen. We don't want to see them to be beyond what have been first projected because that could be negative as far as people using uh, the subway. So the MTA has a, a real challenge out there, um, but what they have to do is, is be as creative as possible in controlling expenses and perhaps, as I said, modifying not just for the subways, but, you know, for the rail lines as well and the buses to maximize uh, the ways in which they're meeting the, the change patterns in terms of people, uh, how people are commuting. So uh, we're going to keep a close eye on the MTA. I know, you know, I've had a conversation with Jan Lieber. He's very hands-on. Uh, you know, uh, he's trying to figure this out. You've got the whole issue still looming of congestion pricing. It's still controversial. It's not all been approved anyway. Yeah. Some people suggest using some of that money for operating expenses, which then could jeopardize the capital plan. So, you know, it's a very complex system, but for sure the economy of downstate New York is totally tied to the health and, and strength of, of, of the Metropolitan Transportation Authority. We need the subways and the trains and the buses to be adequate with their schedules, to be well-financed, for the workers there to be respected and to get a decent pay. So 
without the MTA, that's really the lifeblood of the of the city and the downstate economy. So we have to keep it in good in good strength. That's why we always monitor carefully how their how their finances are going. But but the big the big drain right now is the fact that ridership is not back to where where it was pre pandemic, and that's obviously tied to a lot of the other issues that we talked about. Since we since we can't do this live per se and take like questions from our audience, you know, I always sort of ping them ahead of time and ask them to sort of submit questions. So if you could just indulge me for a minute, I do have a few I wanted to uh, give you. Uh, one, Yankees or Mets? <laughs> uh, both. Let's hope for a subway series. Getting back to the MTA and subway, think <laughs> of what a subway series would do to the fare box of the MTA. So I'm for both, and I'm for a subway series, and I won't pick uh, either. Two. My brother is a big Yankee fan. I will say that I was probably growing up a little more of a Met fan, but in my current position, I support all New York teams. So that means the question you didn't ask on the football side. That means. It's not Jets or Giants, it's Buffalo Bills. Ah, okay. That's fair, because I was going to follow up with Giants or Jets, so I'm glad nope. you clarified on that. Buffalo Bills, that's our New York team. We share the others with Jersey, so uh, I'm, sticking <laughs> with, I'm sticking with Buffalo Bills. No offense to my dear friends who, who uh, love the Giants and my long-suffering friends who are Jet fans. <laughs> What's your thought on the potential new stadium uh, up there? And, you know, I guess in secondary, what, what is your thought on people jumping through uh, portable tables? <laughs> well, I don't know that I have any thought on that. <laughs> but, um, look, look, the stadium uh, has been criticized. I think, I think, look, the amount of money was a bit eye-popping. And the fact that it came in very late in the budget process without a lot of time for analysis, we certainly were not part of that process. On the other hand, we have to recognize, I've gotten to know Western New York very well in, in my travels over the years. You know, the Buffalo, the Buffalo Bills franchise is very important, not just to the identity, but to the economy of Western New York. So no one should be surprised that there was going to be a major effort by a governor who comes from Buffalo, I might add, uh, that we were going to make sure that, uh, that the, the Buffalo Stadium issue would be dealt with. I also think you have to recognize the way things are done in New York. Every region has their needs. And as part of the budget process, you, we could criticize this, but it is the ways that things happen. Uh, other regions got other things. I, I know I was at a meeting on Long Island and people were critical of the, the money for the Buffalo Bill Stadium. And I said, yeah, but if, when people being critical of Buffalo Bill Stadium, one example is that a pot of $350 million for economic development in Nassau and Suffolk County suddenly became part of the budget agreement. So, so you know, I'm sure people outside of Long Island would be critical of what looked like, a, you know, a, an unrestricted pot of money for economic development. But that's, there was enough money in the budget to try to satisfy the different regional needs. So um, at the end of the day, this is the judgment of the governor and the legislature. People could like it, not like it. We have elections this year. If, 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 if you don't like something about um, what was in the budget, you have the opportunity to express that uh, at the polls. But I, I think, you know, in the long run, it was very important. I mean, Buffalo's not the biggest market in the world. The fact that we have a, you know, a, a first-class team like the Buffalo Bills, uh, that's, that's important that we retain that. So again, we weren't privy to the negotiations. So I, 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 I don't know what the alternatives were, whether they could have gotten a better deal. 
that I don't know. We weren't part of that, but um, we, we shouldn't be surprised that the outcome was to, to do something, to, to have a new stadium, to keep the bills for sure in Western New York. As long as they sell muni bonds to support it, I'm, I'm on board. <laughs> You're okay with it then? Yes. <laughs> See, enlightened self-interest always rules the day. <laughs> eh, yes, I would agree with that. Um, do you have a favorite New York City restaurant? Oh, wow. That's impossible. I mean, <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's absolutely impossible. So, I agree. Yeah, no, I, I uh, no, I'm not, I, I can't go there. No, 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 that's, no, no. That's totally fair. This... <laughs> I can tell you the last restaurant I ate at was Capitol Grill, but that's not so my favorite, but that is a place I often end up because the locations are very convenient to where I am. So we have one right by our, right by our office, but Hey, that's one of the great things about New York. And, and, I mean, not just Manhattan. I mean, I've been spending time in Queens lately. I mean, Queens is like the United Nations and you go to a place like Jackson Heights, you could get whatever cuisine you want. I mean, it's really just um, remarkable and, and, and wonderful. And uh, Brooklyn, Bronx, same thing. Uh, the different ethnic uh, dishes are just, you know, just wonderful, right? I mean, obviously I have a prejudice for Italian food, but um, the diversity of the food offerings that we have in New York City. It's one of the reasons why people come to New York, right? Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, no, no, I can't pick a favorite because I, I don't recall the last time I had a bad meal in, at a New York restaurant. I agree. Um, well, usually we end, we end with a pretty doom and gloom question, but I'm hesitant to do it. Um, I'm wondering if we should end on New York City foodies. Usually we ask, you know, what, what keeps you up at night in, in the world, in your world? Um, but I'm wondering if we want to strike a more optimistic tone this time, Eric. Yeah, I mean, that's fine. I, I mean, look, what might keep him up at night may be his indecision in finding a favorite New York City restaurant. <laughs> and, we could, and that may be a perfectly fine way to end. Look, I'm, I'm in agreement with Amanda. Um, I think this has been fantastic. And I certainly hope the, the listeners have gotten a little bit more perspective on you know, New York State finances and, and you know, all the good work that you're doing uh, in the Comptroller's office. So I thank you so much for joining us today. Well, Eric and Amanda, thank you. It's been a great discussion. I hope we could do it again in the near future because I'm sure a lot of what we've talked about is going to be very different a few months from now. And it would be great to give an update uh, to you and your listeners sometime in the near future. Absolutely. All right. Thanks so much. Thank All, right. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.